Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, and we say this sometimes, I want to say it again. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the black Bibles in the chair in front of you, uh, those are for you to use. And if you don't have a Bible, take that home. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, and we're working through 1 Corinthians right now, and so we've put out scripture journals. Uh, and if you don't have one of those, there's still a few copies back at the Welcome Center. We would love for you to have one of those so that you can be taking notes and, and jotting down observations and then taking it home and studying it more deeply. Uh, as, as a pastor, as, as a person preaching, there's nothing better for us than the sight of you guys with your nose in the text as we're preaching through it. Because we feel uh, a holy burden to, to stay tied to the text. When, when we're preaching, we're only coming to you with what we see in the text. We want the main point of what we have on Sunday morning to be the main point of the text. And so we want you to have a copy of God's Word so that you can see what we are seeing in the text. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to you wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and we saw that the Corinthian church was dividing based on who they were following as a preacher. Some follow Apollos, some follow Paul, some follow Cephas, some follow Christ. 
And Paul comes in and he says, that's nonsense. We cannot divide along those lines. Paul says, I wasn't sent to preach with eloquent wisdom. I was sent to preach the gospel, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's burden was that his preaching would not get in the way of the cross, but would exalt the cross. And so now in this passage, Paul camps out on that idea, on the importance of the message of the cross and how it undermines our pride and our self-sufficiency and our boasting. And instead, it demonstrates that the power belongs to God through Christ. And Christ and the cross is where we boast. And so we're going to walk through the passage and, and see how Paul unpacks that idea. He starts in verse 18, the word of the cross, which is what he was worried would be emptied of its power, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's, there's been divisions in the church, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, etc., and Paul says, there are only two divisions in the world. There are only two types of people. There are those who reject the message of the cross, who see it as foolishness. They're perishing. And then there are those of us, Paul says us, he's inviting the church to join him. There are those of us who are being saved. Those of us who are receiving the word of the cross as God's power for salvation. This, this verse echoes what he says elsewhere in Romans 1.16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are only two types of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved by the power of God revealed in the gospel of the cross of Christ. That's Paul's main burden, that, that we would see that you're either in or you're out. And so he, he unpacks this, he, he looks at these two camps, those who are perishing, those who see the cross as foolishness, and those who are being saved. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's worldly wisdom and then there's godly wisdom. And Paul says, worldly wisdom only leads to death. It cannot take you where you need to go. Godly wisdom is what leads to life. So he, he asks these questions, these rhetorical questions in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? So he says, bring, bring forth the, the, the best and the brightest that the world has to offer. Those, those who are wise, those, those who uh, have a lot to offer the world in the way of wisdom, Paul says, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. 
Where is the scribe? This is the, the well-educated person. Scribes were well-educated in manners of the law. They could handle the law well. Where is the debater or philosopher of this age? Where is the person with eloquent wisdom, eloquent uh, oratory skills? What does, what does Paul think of this group of people? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And the reason he's done this is because the world did not know God through wisdom. Verse 21, the world cannot know God through wisdom. The best that we can do in our strength, the best knowledge that we can attain, the best wisdom that we can pursue in our own strength is not good enough. It will never get us to God. I've been reading uh, and listening to the lectures lately of a guy named Jordan B. Peterson. Maybe you've heard of him. He's, he's kind of emerged in the last five or ten years as uh, a public intellectual, um, as someone that's just really, really intelligent and articulate. He's a, he's a psychiatrist and a, a university professor in Toronto. Um, just really, really intelligent. One of the one of the brightest minds that I've ever uh, heard or or read. Um, and he has a lot of wisdom. Uh, he's his 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 lectures and his books have been helpful to me, um, answering questions about uh, how we're supposed to interact in society and cult how how we engage culture and. Uh, on, on questions of, of meaning and, and, and how to embrace personal responsibility. And he's even got, uh, he's, I just read a chapter of his book that was dealing with parenting and, and found it practically helpful to me. Um, so, so there's a lot of wisdom that we can gain from the world. And, and this, Jordan Peterson, he's interesting because he has wrestled deeply with questions of religion and he's, he's read the Bible um, and and he, he has a lot to say about the Bible and how it works and how, how people have used the Bible. But he approaches it from a secular perspective. He, he's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in the personal God that's revealed in Scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't affirm the reality that we need to be reconciled to, to a personal God through Jesus Christ. He's approaching it from a different perspective. And because of that, his knowledge, his wisdom is really limited in its value. It only goes so far. He's not answering the ultimate questions. Right? He's, he's one of the best minds that our, our age has to offer, but there's a ceiling to his wisdom. The most important question for the human race is how can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? And he is not equipped to answer that question. So there's wisdom that we can gain from the world, but we need to be able to to filter that wisdom through God's word. We need to be able to see the limitations of that wisdom. It reminded me also of the story uh, back during the space race when the, the, the Soviets and the Americans were trying to outdo one another. You remember the Russians got someone into space first. 
They sent the first cosmonaut into space. And when he, when he got there, right, the Soviet Union is this atheistic uh, nation. And he got there and he says, I've been to space and God wasn't there. Right? I've been to heaven and there was no God. Right? So he's filled with pride and, and arrogance. And uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he wrote, for him to say that I've been to space and there is no God is similar to uh, Hamlet climbing up into the attic of his castle and saying, there is no Shakespeare. Right? I've been up there and there is no Shakespeare. Right? It's just, he's just not equipped to answer that question. That's the wisdom of the world. That's, it can only go so far. Right? We cannot find God. We cannot find ultimate meaning, meaning through our worldly wisdom, through our own flesh and our own efforts. It's going to fall short. And Paul says that's the way God designed it. It's God's plan that we would not know him through our wisdom. And instead, it has pleased God to save those who believe. And what is it that they believe? They believe the folly of what we preach. The foolish message of the gospel is God's means for salvation. So what is that message? Let's look. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So why does worldly wisdom, worldly expectations, why do they fall short? Because they don't understand God's plan. Paul points out the Jews, they were looking for signs. And we saw this in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the Jewish people in Jesus and in Paul's day, they had this expectation that God would send his Messiah, his, his Christ, his anointed king, like King David, and this Messiah would come in and he would restore Israel to its former place of glory. So Israel used to be this powerful nation. They've now been conquered and they're under the thumb of the Romans. And the Jews are looking for a king to come in and to squash the Romans and to restore Israel to, to be the most powerful nation. Right? And so they were looking for a king to come in with these powerful signs. These signs that demonstrate his power. And we saw that in, in Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Pharisees are saying, okay, Jesus, if you, if you say you're the Christ, start acting like it. Show us your power. 
Show us a sign that you are the conquering king who has come. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The sign that you're looking for, you're not going to get. But the sign that I'm going to perform is I'm going to die. And I'm going to be raised to new life. And it happened with Jesus and the disciples too. When Jesus was telling the disciples what was going to happen to him, when he said that I'm going to be, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to raise from the dead, Peter pulls him aside he says, Jesus, far be it from you. This will never happen to you. You're the king. You're not going to be, you're not going to be killed. That's nonsense, Jesus. And you remember Jesus' response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand what I'm here for. You don't understand the sign that I am about to do. So Jews were looking for this powerful demonstration through a sign. Meanwhile, the Greeks, and Paul here is, is using Greeks and Gentiles interchangeably. We see in 22 through 24, he, he goes back and forth. So basically non-Jews. And he, says, he specifically says Greeks here because Greeks were known for their wisdom. Greeks were known for their intellectual prowess. And so the Greeks, they were looking for, for signs of wisdom. When, when Paul went to Athens, and Athens was kind of the mecca for intellectual uh, attainment in, in Paul's day, he, he goes to Athens and he sees that they're just looking for signs of wisdom. So in Acts chapter 17, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was kind of the central place where they would give their speeches, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Athens was essentially this ongoing TED Talk, right? They just wanted the, the best speaker to come in and share the newest uh, philosophical idea. They loved to hear that. So they were looking for who, who's got the best new idea for us. Jews are demanding signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, and that's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. The Jews are looking for a conquering king, and Paul says, we have a king who is killed. We preach Christ, the king, crucified. And the Jews, many of the Jews rejected that outright. That cannot be. The king can't be killed, he's supposed to conquer. So it can't be Jesus, he can't be the one that we're supposed to turn to. And the Greeks, they're expecting someone in a, in a, in a long white robe who's very learned to come and share this great wisdom. 
And instead, Jesus says, a Jewish carpenter from the backwaters of Nazareth is the king of the universe. And he was killed on a Roman cross. And now he's alive. And if you turn to him in faith and repentance, you can be saved. And these Greeks would have looked at that and said, what are you talking about? A Jew? A lowly Jew? And the, the cross, Roman crucifixion was awful. And it was considered awful in Paul's day. It was not a topic for polite conversation. You wouldn't bring up crucifixions at a dinner party any more than we would talk about a lynching together. Right? So the idea that a crucified criminal is the king of the universe is just foolishness to the Gentiles. And Paul says, no, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God, both for Jews and for Greeks. For Jews, they need to understand that our greatest threat is not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Our greatest threat is not that we're under the, the Roman thumb, but that we are under condemnation of sin and death. That we have sinned against a holy God who, des- who we deserve his wrath. And so the king, Jesus, needs to come and conquer that. The king has come to humble himself and to die the death that we deserve, and then to be raised to new life, having conquered sin and death. Forget the Romans. They're small, they're small potatoes. You need deliverance from sin and Satan and death. And the Greeks, they need to know that it's not about how much you know. It's not about how well-connected you are. It's not about the newest idea but there's a king that you need to worship. And that king has been conquered and now has conquered sin and death. So think about this. In verse 25, Paul says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross looks like foolish weakness. It looks like an utter failure. Jesus, hanging on the cross, naked and bloody, does not look impressive, does not look triumphant or smart. Surely that was not his plan, is how it looks, right? From a worldly perspective, Jesus on the cross, things have not gone well for him. It looks like God's darkest hour. It looks like the end of God's plan, God's failure. It looks like foolish weakness. And Paul says, that moment in history, Christ crucified, is the most important thing that has ever happened. It's God's greatest demonstration of wisdom and power. What looks like foolishness to you is God's great wisdom. What looks like weakness to you is more powerful than anything humans will ever do. Christ on the cross 
is better than anything you and I will ever produce. It's more effective than anything you and I will ever do. And so Paul says, far from foolishness, far from weakness, it is God's power. Jesus Christ crucified for your sins and raised from the dead having conquered sin and death is your means of salvation. It is the way that God has offered to reconcile you to himself. It is available to anybody, to anybody who believes. And so, Paul encourages the church and he's encouraging us to look back on who we were when we first understood this message. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says, hey, listen, Corinthian church, most of you are not impressive people. And so why do you think that your wisdom and your power and your nobility is the factor that commends you to God? It's the thing that impresses other people about you. Why are you seeking to build uh, your reputation on who you are? It's exactly the opposite. Most of you were nothing. Most of you were fools. Most of you were weak. And that's not an accident. That's God's plan to demonstrate that the weak, foolish nothings of the world will attain salvation. Most of you aren't that impressive either, right? You're just from Humboldt. Some of you are like, well, I'm from Rolf, right? (laughs) Most of us aren't aren't that impressive, right? I, I, I I appreciate that he says, not many of you were wise, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Some of them were. Some people are powerful. Some people are wise. Some people do have a good pedigree, an impressive pedigree. But it doesn't matter. Whether you come from a lofty position or a low position is not that important. Your wisdom Your power, your status, your connections, they're a footnote in the story of God's salvation. It's just a passing comment. Who you are is a really minor detail compared with who God is and what he is doing in you. So I want to make a plug for baptism here. The reason that we do baptisms the way we do, that we have people... In the baptismal, uh, we have them give their testimony. It's because we want people to see that it is God who saves, that it is God who calls us out of death into life. Nobody stands in the baptismal and says, I'm really great. God's really lucky to have me. You guys are so fortunate that I'm now a part of the church. Right? That is not the story. I love baptisms 
because I love hearing different stories. I love the variety of backgrounds that people come from, the variety of experiences, the variety of baggage that we all bring to the cross. And what's highlighted is, I was nothing. And what I thought I was wasn't nearly as impressive as I thought. And the only reason I'm standing before you today is because of what Christ has done in me. And so if you are following Jesus Christ and you haven't taken the step to be baptized yet, I realize that for many people, the the biggest roadblock, the biggest hurdle, is it's just really scary to talk in front of people. But it's not about you. And so it doesn't have to be scary. And so sign up for the baptism class next week and stand in the baptismal and tell people what Christ has done. You don't have to be impressive. Jesus is impressive. And so take that step of proclaiming what Christ has done for you. This this section also highlights that there has to be room in the church for people who aren't like you. There has to be room in the church for people who are different from you. If everybody in this church looks like you, is wired the same way you are, that's not a good sign of health. The church is a place that cuts through every division. The church is a place for the old and the young, for the well-educated and the ones that only made it through grade school for the successful and the ones that are just scraping by, right? There there should be room in the church for people who look different from you, who act differently than you, who have different political persuasions than you. Because what's important is what do you do with Christ? How do you respond to the message of Christ crucified? Everything else is secondary. So let's not make secondary things the main thing at Oak Hill. Let's make room for people. We just want more people who are trusting in Christ and the rest will filter out. And the reason that it works this way, the reason that God doesn't call people according to their Uh, nobility, according to their power, according to their status, according to their connections, is so that no one may boast in the presence of God. Verse 29. There's no room for boasting in the church at the cross. It's not about what we have done. It's not about how wise, how powerful, how good we are. It's about what God has done in us through Christ. And I hope you see that as good news because I don't know about you, but I don't feel very wise most of the time. I don't feel very well connected. I don't feel very powerful, influential. And Paul's saying here, salvation is for you. Salvation is for everyone who believes. You don't have to be well-educated. You don't have to be influential or of high social status. All you need to do is trust Christ and what he has done for you. The gospel is simple. 
It's not overly complicated. It's not out of reach for most people. And Paul reminds us here at the end, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That reality, that label in Christ Jesus transcends every other label. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have wisdom from God. You are righteous in God's eyes. You will be sanctified and you will be redeemed through Christ Jesus. That's way more important. And because of that, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want bragging rights? Brag about what Christ has done in and through you. Brag about what Christ is doing for you. It's not about what we have done. It's not about what we know, who we know. It's Christ in us. And we see, just to, to conclude here, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 how Paul himself lives out this reality. Paul had a, a thorn in the flesh. Paul was a no stranger of weakness. He, he, he himself endured great weakness. And he says in, in chapter 12 that he pleaded with God to take away his weakness, but he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul knew, hey, I don't have to be good I don't have to be strong. I don't have to be powerful. I don't have to be impressive. Christ is perfect in me. Christ is exalted through my weaknesses. When Christ carries me, it shows how powerful he is and people will be drawn to Jesus and not to me. So let's be that way. Let's follow Paul in boasting in the cross, boasting in our weakness not talking about our strengths, not talking about what we bring to the table, but Christ and what he brings. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, nothing in our hands are bring, we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. We are, we are weak, we are foolish, we cannot get to you on our own strength, and so you have sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do. Help us to boast in the cross, the cross where Jesus came down and paid the price for our sins, conquered sin and death, and gave us new life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.